Hello, and welcome to this next lecture in Western Civilization II. In this lecture, what I want to do is give a brief survey of English history up until the Norman Conquest in 1066. I do this for the history of England because England is so important and consequential for us in the United States, because England is so important and consequential in Western civilization generally. And so it's important for us to have a broad grasp of their history. So let's go back. Uh, as far as we know, we don't know a lot prehistory, but we, but we, what we do know begins with the Celts, C-E-L-T. The Celts were a barbarian tribe or a tribal group that extended from Spain to the shores of the Black Sea, um, from even the Aegean all the way up to England. Uh, the Greeks were aware of the Celts. They called them Keltoi, K-E-L-T-O-I. Uh, the Romans also had a name for them. The Romans called them Gali, or as we know them, Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. So, um, and in another relation to the word Celt is the area or the region of Galatia, uh, known for the book of Galatians in the New Testament. That name, Galatia, is taken from the word Celt. So this is a very wide-ranging uh, tribe that seemed to inhabit England uh, and its islands first. Now, there's other uh, barbarian groups that are going to play an important role. There's the Angles, from which we get the first part of the word English or England, A-N-G-L-E. You can see there the root of English. They're a Germanic group uh, which invaded Britain with the Saxons. <clears throat> then there's, of course, the Saxons, and you take those two together, Angles and Saxons, uh, and that is the name of sort of a people group that inhabited England for a long time. Uh, the Saxons are another Germanic people uh, who were the largest percentage of those barbarian forces that are going to invade England in the 6th century A.D. There's also tribes called Jutes, J-U-T-E-S, another uh, Germanic tribe from the mainland, and Picts, P-I-C-T-S. Uh, this is a barbarian tribe native of Ireland and Scotland. So in the earliest stages of English history, we have these various barbarian tribes, but primarily, mainly, Celts. So what I'm going to do now is go through a brief chronology, and then we'll zoom in on some more detail on some of these periods. So from 600 to about 75 BC, you have Celtic migrations into England from the mainland, uh, taking over whatever tribes were there first. So this is a long period of time of migration. Uh, keep in mind that during this period of time was when uh, Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, uh, also when the Roman Republic was starting. Um, around 55 to 54 BC, Julius Caesar uh, had two brief campaigns in Britain. So this is the very beginning of Roman expansion and Rome's touch on the English Isles. Uh, again, for perspective, um, Keep in mind that in 70 AD, uh, the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, then from about 122 to 133, something remarkable happened. Rome is getting to their furthest extent, and they realize they cannot control the wild north of England, what we know of as Scotland. 
And so Hadrian determines to build a wall, much like the, uh, the Great Wall of China. It was meant to keep the northern barbarians out. It spanned from shore to shore. It was manned with guard towers that could quickly move from one stretch of the wall to another to keep invasion from happening. Uh, so we see this as the sort of furthest extent of the Roman Empire. They've conquered the south, but the north pr proves uh, unconquerable. In 210, we're beginning to see weakness in Rome uh, because the Saxons are beginning to raid on the southeastern coast of England. They're beginning to come and uh, just loot, steal, uh, kill, and then pull out. Of course, in 325, you have the Council of Nicaea. And then, very consequentially, in 410, the Romans withdraw from Britain. <clears throat> Now, if you'll pay attention there, the Romans have been there for almost 500 years. So they've definitely left a mark. Lots of place names, lots of architecture. Uh, just recently, a small tin was dug up with makeup in it, sort of some sort of oil And there was the thumbprint of the last person to have used it there, uh, who was a Roman. So they've definitely left their mark there. But most importantly, what they left behind is their blood, uh, their DNA. Because the Romans intermarried with the local tribes, particularly the Celts. And the remaining mixture of Celtic-Roman families were the upper class in England after Rome withdrew. Um, we call this mix of Celtic and Roman Britain, a Britain, B-R-I-T-O-N. So the, the Britons rule in England. And we should also point out that Rome, as they do, brings many things to England. Well, they also brought Christianity. So these Britons had Christian culture as well. Uh, and they are the, they're going to be, uh, the rulers in England. Now, I should also mention at this point that it is in this context that the legends of King Arthur come up. And whatever the truth behind the stories, we assume that if King Arthur really existed, he was a Briton. He was one of these mix of Roman and Celtic, who is also a Christian, who lived in England in a time of decline. Uh, when barbarians, pagan barbarians, were invading. Um, and his life was taken up with the task of defending Christian England against pagan uh, barbarian invasions. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this individual later, but in 432 AD, uh, a young man from Wales, who was the grandson of a Christian priest, who had been taken captive Uh, by the Irish, kidnapped by the Irish, made a slave for seven years, became a Christian during that period of time, returned to England, then set out to go back and bring the Christian mission to Ireland. And um, so far as we know, it was under Patrick's ministry or under Patrick's mission that Christianity came in a decisive way to England. And this is going to be very important later on. Because Ireland tended to be cut off from the rest of the world. So he injects Ireland with Christianity, but then that Christianity kind of stews and steeps on its own apart from the rest of the Christian world. So just keep that in mind. There's Christianity in Ireland, but it's sort of cut off from the rest of Europe. Well, 
Then in 442, you have the beginning of Saxon invasions and expansions into England. Um, many barbarians, rather than uh, attacking and stealing and leaving, are beginning to settle down, much like happened in the Roman Empire down south in Italy. Um, the Britons plead for help from Rome and um, don't seem to get a lot of help. Um, between 460 and 490, there's constant warfare between the Britons and Saxons. Um, between 485 and 495, we have accounts of an Arthur, Count of Britain, defeating Saxons in a series of battles. Now again, to bring some um, other historical, broader perspective, um, in 486, right in the middle of this time, Clovis is establishing his Frankish kingdom in Gaul. Um, so remember, Arthur is, is possibly existing during a time when Rome, as we know it, has collapsed in the West. Well, from 550 to 600, despite Arthur's momentary success, the Saxons invade and conquer Britain. They pretty much take over. Christians and Christianity is driven into Wales, driven into the westernmost part there in, south, uh, in the south of England. Um, and the Anglo-Saxons more or less take over um, and set up barbarian kingdoms in England. So England has been Christian and then it's been paganized uh, by the Anglo-Saxons. Well, then we have this story in 596 of Pope Gregory, who in this story, he's going through the markets of Rome and he encounters several slaves, people being sold as slaves, who he described as angels. They were fair skinned and blue eyed. And uh, he was struck by them. He said they were angelic. They weren't dark-skinned. Uh, and he buys them to set them free and uh, finds out where they come from and who they are, and he learns all about England. And because of all that, decides to send um, a missionary to England. And this is Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, a different Augustine. So in 596, Pope Gregory sends... Uh, Augustine, who comes to be called Augustine of Canterbury, he goes and preaches to Ethelbert, the uh, Saxon king of England, who is then baptized. And as happens a lot in the Middle Ages, when the king becomes baptized, Christianity comes, nominally at least, the culture of Christianity comes to that country. So it's in 596 that um, he baptizes Ethelbert, he becomes the first archbishop of Canterbury, and Canterbury there on the uh, Thames River becomes the main seat um, of Christianity in England. Um, again, for more perspective, right around the time Ethelbert's being baptized, not long after that, in 622, Muhammad is being run out of um, Mecca. Well, remember I mentioned that Christianity steeps and stews and develops for a while in Ireland. Um, Irish monasticism is very vibrant. Um, they are known for beautiful illuminated manuscripts, particularly illuminated gospels. Um, the idea was that the Bible is true and the word of God, and therefore the words and the pages and the dec decorations of the Bible themselves should be beautiful. And um, the book of Kells, K-E-L-L-S, is probably the most famous of these. But at any rate, Irish Christianity has sort of developed on its own and developed some distinctive traditions. Well, after a while, 
the Irish Irish Christianity is so vibrant that they send out missionaries to Scotland. Uh, and they send out missionaries to the Scandinavian countries. So you have Celtic or Irish Christianity in the north of England through Scotland spreading south, and you have uh, English Christianity from Rome in the south of England spreading north, and they met in the middle. And they were kind of surprised to find these Christians, these Celtic Christians, and they are also surprised to find that some of their traditions were different. This was problematic for a while because this threatened to be a separate branch of Christianity. Well, all this was settled in 664 uh, at something called the Synod of Whitby, S-Y-N-O-D of Whitby, W-H-I-T-B-Y, when Celtic Christians agreed that they would um, adopt Roman conventions, the Roman conventions in terms of celebration of Easter and other Christian holidays and uh, various liturgical conventions. So um, Christianity is spreading through England and spreading to the mainland from England, again, from these Irish monasteries. Uh, In 800, again, for just a point of reference, Charlemagne is crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Then we come to 871 to 899. These are the years of the reign of the most well-known uh, and maybe most important of Saxon kings, Alfred. Uh, Alfred is a Christian king of England. Um, he, he sets up a lot of things that um, are going to become very important for England in settling down its history and its administration. Um, he rules with himself and a body of elders, as it were, called the Wittenagemot, uh, the wise men, something like the predecessor to parliament. He divides England into shires, that should sound familiar, uh, basically county divisions, uh, with shire moots, which are courts. Every county or every shire had a court, and shire reeves. R-E-E-V-E-S. That is, you should be able to hear there the English word sheriff, who is a law official over a county. So you see the beginning of a lot of conventions that we continue to carry on today. Shires, shire moots or shire courts, and shire reeves. So you see this complex administration developing. Uh, Basically, Alfred's kingdom and his administration was one of the most complex and successful in the Middle Ages. And the most important part about any government to be a success is its ability to collect taxes. And he was able to do that very, very well. In fact, there's something called the Doomsday Book, um, which was a census taken in Anglo-Saxon England. And they went through all the realm, the Anglo-Saxon realm, counting every, not just every person in every house, but every chicken. All right, They counted every animal, every uh, piece of livestock. It's one of the most thorough censuses in history, and it gives us a, a very good picture of England during this time. Moving ahead through our timeline, we get to 1054 when you have, uh, remember, the east-west church split uh, going on. Um, So that is a very important development in church history. Now, maybe the most important moment is 1066, uh, what is known as the Norman invasion. And I should back up and talk about this a little bit more. 
one of the barbarian groups in the Middle Ages that created a lot of fear and a lot of instability was the Vikings. The Vikings were a barbarian group from Scandinavia. Uh, they are known for their ships that had very shallow keels, often with heads of animals, horses, or particularly dragons. They had sails, but they also had oars. And uh, the, the shallow keel allowed these ships to go up rivers. And so <clears throat> long about the 7th and 8th century, these Vikings began to pan out throughout uh, Europe, even down as far as the Mediterranean, and raid. They were raiders. They typically early on were not interested in taking over, but much like the barbarians that helped bring it into Rome, Vikings were um, mainly interested in loot. Uh, they're somewhat famous for their horns with helmets, although we're pretty sure they actually never had uh, horns with helmets, just the, the pointy horns like we know of them. Um, it should also be pointed out that they liked to name their swords. Um, so there's a lot of things that we maybe are familiar with through the works of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, or even C.S. Lewis. But at any rate, the Saxons eventually got tired of merely raiding and they eventually settled down, and one of the most important places they settled down is in northern France, um, an area that uh, we call Normandy. Now, listen to that word, Normandy. The Vikings were called Norsemen, which means Northmen. Uh, so these were people from the north, barbarians from the north, who raided, but eventually settled down, and they settled down in northern uh, France, among other places, and so that area became co called Normandy, or Northmandy, if you will. Uh, you probably are also thinking of Norse, if you know anything about Norse mythology, like Thor, popularized by Marvel Comics, Odin, Loki. These are all gods from Norse mythology. So the, these Norsemen settled down, and they basically become French. They didn't have a written language of their own, and they didn't have much of their own culture, and so they wind up uh, learning French. <clears throat> they wind up um, settling down and adopting French culture. Now, by the way, a little parenthetical statement. Hopefully you know that French at this point was uh, merely the state of Latin in Charlemagne's former empire as that language developed. Uh, remember, the Romance languages are all languages that developed from Latin, as Latin spread far and wide and then sort of got cut off on its own and uh, developed in its own direction. So you have Spanish and Portuguese and Romanian and Catalan. These are all Romance languages. So at any rate, these Vikings settle down and they basically, basically become dignified French guys. And, as I said, they live in what we know of as um, Normandy. Now, that brings us up to date with our date that I said was so important, 1066. What happens is, in England, there's a dispute over the succession to the English throne. And a nobleman from Normandy, um, by descent, by marriage, has a partial, possibly legitimate claim to that succession. His name is Duke William of Normandy. And because there's a dispute, he decides, well, I'm going to take the throne. It's mine by rights, so I'm going to take it. And he invades in 1066. And at the Battle of Hastings, uh, he is um, successful. 
he takes over England. He is crowned on Christmas Day. That should sound familiar. Um, and all of a sudden, England is that had been Anglo-Saxon, which, by the way, is a very Germanic-sounding language. Uh, it would sound to us a lot like German. Is overlaid with Norman culture. Uh, the Normans bring French culture. They bring Latin vocabulary. They bring different manners. The upper class are the Normans, and they sort of look down on the conquered class, that is the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, by the way, the origin of a lot of our English curse words was simply everyday Anglo-Saxon words for bodily functions and everyday issues of life that uh, were sort of frowned upon because they were Anglo-Saxon and not, uh, not Norman or Latin. So at any rate, this is the origin um, of of the Latin influence and even French influence on, um, on English culture. By the way, I should also point out that much of what Tolkien was doing when he invented languages and then created a world that those languages could inhabit was imagine what English might have become if the Norman invasion never happened. Uh, he wanted to get rid of all Latinate vocabulary from English um, and see what English might have been without Latin. So just to give a few examples, in the, the books that he wrote, Frodo and Bilbo live at Bag End. Well, the French or Latinate version of that word is cul-de-sac. Right? A cul-de-sac is the end of a bag. Uh, so we know what a cul-de-sac is by streets. Well, basically, Bilbo lived at a cul-de-sac right? at the end of a bag. Um, and there's lots of other examples in the works of Tolkien, where he was sort of wistfully imagining what would have happened if the Norman invasion, Norman invasion hadn't taken place. Um, okay, so uh, in 1087, William dies, but the Norman kingdom is rather firmly established in England and is going to be the basis of English culture for a long time. Um, and in 1106, Henry ascends to the throne. Um, and uh, his daughter, Matilda, marries a guy named Geoffrey IV, Count of Anjou. This is, a, this is in France. And what is known as the Plantagenet dynasty is born. All right, Plant, like P-L-A-N-T-A-G-E-N-E-T. -E -E uh, this is the beginning of the Plantagenet dynasty. Um, in 1154... Their son, um, Matilda and Geoffrey's son, Henry II, uh, is crowned king of England and sets up the beginning of all these Henrys, among other names, that are very important as Plantagenet kings. Um, now, I should also just sort of end at this point by saying that, remember, these Normans continued to hold lands in Normandy. So this English kingdom under Henry II around 1054 included half of France and rule over Scotland and Ireland. So it's a rather large empire. Um, they're settled in southern England. All right, so there's a broad, very quick survey of English history up to about 1054, uh, up through the Norman invasion. <clears throat> now, one of the things I'm going to, have you look up this week in your homework is 
a very interesting uh, animated version of a tapestry that was found uh, actually quite recently. This tapestry is called the Bayou Tapestry, and it depicts the Battle of Hastings in rather gory detail. Like you see severed limbs and heads chopped off, and it's sort of in cartoony style. Uh, but it's a really interesting tapestry in that it's very, very long, uh, and it gives us uh, a great picture of some of the details in the narration of the Battle of Hastings. So I'm going to have you watch that this week. So let me wrap up by just mentioning some important people to know uh, in English history. I mentioned St. Patrick. He is the uh, Christian from Wales who takes Christianity to Ireland. I, imagine, I mentioned Ethelbert, the first Christian king of, Ireland, or of England, the first Christian Anglo-Saxon king, I should say, of Ireland. I mentioned Augustine of Canterbury, who is the first Christian bishop of England in the south. Um, there are also um, very important missionaries like St. Columba, who brought Christianity to Scotland and then to Scandinavia. Uh, there's the Venerable Bede, B-E-D-E, who uh, was a, a Christian monk who wrote a history of Christianity in England, and much of what we know about um, the history of England comes from Bede. We have Alfred the Great, king of the, Scot or king of the Saxons. Um, we have Westminster Abbey, which is the administrative and religious center of Christianity and uh, government in England. Uh, started by um, started by these early Christian bishops and kings of England. There's William the Conqueror, the Norman Conqueror of England, um, and many others I could mention, including the Henrys and the Richards, which we'll get to later, but maybe most important is Richard I, the Lionhearted, who will be a crusader king. Uh, and that will segue for us into next week's topic, which is... Uh, the Crusades and the history of the Crusades.